All right, you ready to open up your Bibles and get started? Oh, we got to get our seats. Okay, yeah, you can give a quick hug on your way back. That's fine. Okay, let's open up our Bibles to uh, first, uh, uh, first Kings chapter 18. All right, I have my 23 minutes and 42 seconds, okay? That's what I got, okay? And there's a lot of territory to cover. It's so imperative when we are doing a series and we let you know what it is in advance that you actually read the material at a minimum after we've done it, okay? And you can double back because there's so much to get. We're in the middle of our series of maintaining, forging and maintaining godly relationships because one of the things that is so important in the Christian life, it is not just a personal relationship with God. It's a relationship that involves our relationships around us and it is key for people that are men and women of God to have tight, close godly relationships to sustain them and to help them accomplish what God has in mind for them. No, it's not just all you and God. No, it's just not all, you know, horizontal or all vertical. It's all together. And so we've been looking at these, uh, these relationships, David and Jonathan, two young guys forged in the heat of battle and respect you know, for each other, even though they had conflicting interests in their families. And then we saw David and Mephibosheth, uh, two completely different situations, the king of Israel and then a crippled, nobody, forgotten man, but they also are forged because of loyalty and because of the promises of God. And then if you remember, we went on, we talked about Naomi and Ruth and their commitment as sisters to stick together, even though there was a generation and age uh, apart, they were loyal to each other, and God used them in this amazing way. And then this relationship, a godly relationship with a man and a woman, older single people, you know, one uh, a widow and one probably never married, and they had a godly relationship that ended up producing the king of Israel, David, and in the line of Christ. Isn't that pretty exciting? Last week, okay, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and their relationships being forged. This week, Elijah and Elisha. Let me tell you what we're going to cover. You hear me talking fast? Okay, put your seatbelt on. I probably can't slow down. Okay, so what we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter uh, 18 and on, we're going to cover the material through about 2 Kings chapter 7 until the death of Elisha in chapter 13. We cannot cover all of that. There are so many great historical accounts about how God is working through leadership and prophets and impacting his people. And let me tell you, if you haven't been in those chapters, it's the wild, wild west out there. Crazy stuff, you know, was going on with Elijah and Elisha. They're men on a mission, but they also have an eye to the next generation. We're hopping around in, in typical non-chronological biblical style because the Bible is not written in straight chronology, all right? We've gone from David, you know, and Jonathan's relationship and David and Mephibosheth, probably about 1,000 B.C., as God is bringing, you know, uh, uh, all of God's people together. Uh, they wanted a king. God didn't want to give them a king. His permissive will allowed it. But then David was a good king, and then we jumped forward, okay? We actually jumped backwards, okay, into the time of judges about Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. And then 
then last, uh, last week, we fast-forwarded way ahead to past 586, you know, B.C. as the Babylonians had wiped out the southern kingdom, northern kingdom already wiped out in 721 by the Assyrians, and now they're all exiles, and we got these godly relationships when the church is completely kaput, okay? And it's really doing horrible, and you can barely find it. And now we're, we're, we're backtracking again. Okay, after the time of David and, and right after the time of Solomon, we have found ourselves in a mess. In a mess. It's not just a kingdom anymore. It's not just united anymore. It's been divided by sin and compromise and worshiping other gods and blending in the faith of their fathers and then the peoples around them intermarrying when it was completely forbidden because it would, 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 would cause God's people to run after other gods. And you know, here we are. It's a mess. You're reading through that and you go, what is this king, this king, Jehu, Joseph had, Ahab? I can't keep them straight. What Israel do, what's the difference, okay? Because it's a crazy, crazy time that's going on because of sin. However, God is going to forge and he's going to maintain for a while a godly relationship to try the best that he can to put things back on track. All right, what, uh, let's start reading in, uh, in, in chapter 18. You first meet Elijah here. Elijah, it, uh, Elijah is a wild and crazy guy, okay? He is not what you would call normal, okay? He is a rough-hewn mountain man hollering, screaming, John the Baptist type, okay? And, of course, they're, they're, they're connected with each other. And he, he's a tough customer, okay? And uh, he's also very emotional. He's up and down. I mean, you couldn't call him normal. What do you say normal about a guy who aggressively confronts wicked kings, lived by a stream and was fed by ravens, lived with a widow part of the time, raised dead kids to life, openly challenged the king again and again, called for public confrontation with all the religious leaders of this time, ridiculed the religion and their leaders, mocked a huge number, over 400 of the prophets of Baal, called down fire from heaven, burned it all up, slaughtered all those prophets, outran a king's chariot, yet, then cowardly ran away from his queen. He just went out and just started praying, God, kill me. Just kill me. Then he hikes 40 days across the desert, hides in a cave, and then he hits, and then he hears God's voice, and he tells God, I'm the only righteous person left. <laughs> God will straighten that out later. And he'll say, hey, listen, Elijah, I got lots of people who have not bowed their knee to the veil, and I'm going to introduce you to the next generation. I'm going to introduce you to the man that you're going to give a double portion of your spirit to, and he's going to continue, you know, that ministry. All right? Um, you know, again, let's just, let, let's, let's just go one of the great cool stories. I can't do a lot of humor because I'm moving fast, and there's not that much funny in this material if you want to really know the truth. Okay? There is a little episode in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you're looking at it, where Elijah puts together this confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and he sets up this altar, and he challenges them, hey, call on your God to blow up this altar. I mean, what happened? We don't hear anything. Is he asleep? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's relieving himself. He just went to the john, you know, and he'll be back in a few minutes, okay? That's about, you know, he, he's mocking them, and then... God answers. This is, Elijah, it says, is a man just like us. He prayed and it didn't rain for th uh, three years, three and a half years, because of claiming God's promise. God uses him in such a great way, but he's also a man like, like us in that he's an emotional basket case some of the time. 
And it's up and he's down. But it's a powerful, powerful thing that happens in Second, you know, uh, in First Corinthians chapter 18. If this um, will advance, and it's not, Bob, so let's, let's try to, if you can uh, uh, do it for me. Okay. Uh, you see, as, as we're going on here in the end of, uh, you know, uh, uh, chapter 18, Elijah is threatened by the queen Jezebel, who doesn't like that her prophets got, you know, got killed. And so he, he takes off, and he hides in a cave, and he's feeling really sorry for himself. He's praying, God, kill me. This is too much. And then God uh, sent him up here to this mountain, and he says, I'm going to appear to you, and I'm going to give you some encouragement. And you remember what he sent? He sent some fire, right? But the Bible says God's not in the fire. Then he sends an earthquake, and it's just rocking and rolling. But the Bible says God's not in the earthquake. And then he says a small, gentle whisper. And God is in that whisper. And he tells Elijah what he must next do. All of a sudden, in chapter 19, he suddenly appears 300 miles away at Elisha's house. Elisha's a different kind of guy. Okay, if you want to fast forward to uh, chapter 19, he's a different kind of guy. He's an upper middle class guy. He's in a field with 12 oxen, which re represents a pretty wealthy, you know, uh, you know, a pretty wealthy, you know, group of people. And um, he, um, uh, he's going to, he's going to call him to, uh, you know, he's going to call him to service. And uh, he's going to call to disciple him. Now, again, to fully understand what is going on. And to understand what you just read, if you really want to go read over it in 1 Corinthians chapter, 1 Kings chapter 18, and this whole period of time, there's some things in here that are pretty challenging. Where God really makes it very clear how he feels. He loves people, but he's very serious about righteousness, and he's very serious about not living a life that will corrupt the next generation. If we can go to the next slide again, Bob, I don't think this is working for me. I, I first ran across, my first study in the book of Isaiah, you know, of any depth, was in 1980. I was a uh, campus minister in the University of Colorado, and I ran into this book. If you remember, I, uh, I, I referred to this author, Philip Kelly as he wrote this book on Psalm 23. A shepherd looks at Psalm, you know, 23. That was a really good book. It helped me in my devotional life and walk with God. And he had another book called Elijah, Prophet of Power. This was in 1980 when it was copyrighted, and I got it shortly thereafter. Here's a quote, you know, from Philip Keller. He's writing this, you know, I mean, practically about 50 years ago. And right at the very beginning of his, of his work on Elijah, here's, here's what we say. In the latter half, of the 20th century, there has been in Christian circles an overwhelming emphasis placed on preaching about the love of God. And in its own way, it has done great good. But at the same time, there has been a pronounced tendency to set aside and pass over the righteousness and justice of God. That is the wrong kind of Passover. As he was looking out over the Christian world, in 1980. The net result is that some people assume they can sin with impunity. That means no consequences. They look lightly on ungodliness and lewdness. Just like Jeremiah, who preached later on, they heal the wound of my people lightly, talking about the ministers of God or the priests at that time, saying, peace, peace, where what? There is no peace. You, you have a hard time 
reading the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, if you don't understand that God is a God of love and he's also a God of justice and holiness, you will become hopelessly skewed in one direction or another by being too much on judgment or too much on just on, on love and softness without really putting them you know together if this was true in 1980 how about 2017 where are we 2017 right how's it going with tv with media with, with uh, you know with, with with social mores and what's going on you see we we went We've gone way overboard, and Christian Servant was talking about my personal relationship with God, my personal relationship with God, my personal relationship with this, which is essential, without talking about the, the holiness of God and the righteousness and his commands and the consequences if, if we blow this off. This is like so critically important that we get this and we pray for God to help us have the right balance. We know if you're going to err on one side, do all things in love. Above all else, love one another deeply from the heart, right? And we're not involved in judging each other and just, that's all God's. However, we are really be doing nobody a disservice if we kind of just pass over the commands of God and what he takes really seriously. This is really important. If we go to the next slide, again, I just had really felt like we got to get this background down or we're going to miss stuff as we read in the Bible. You see, what led, all, led up to this? We're, we're back in 1 Kings again, and, and, and we're looking at David's son. Solomon, the Bible tells us, is the wisest man who's ever lived. He's accomplished the greatest thing. In the history of God's people, in their eyes, he has been able to be used by God and given the plans and the resources of his fathers to build the temple. He starts off as good as any young man can possibly start out. When you read in 1 Kings chapter 3, when he becomes king and God appears to him and says, you can have anything you want. And remember what he prays for? He prays for wisdom to be able to lead God's people. That's what he prayed for, and humility, and God says, he was, God, God is impressed. He says, wow, Solomon, because this was your prayer, and this was your heart. I'm going to give you that wisdom, but I'm going to also give you riches and honor and, you know, and glory, really like no other king. Hey, good start, Solomon, right? Any of us have ever had a good start in our Christian life? What happens? Can you read it? Are you in your Bible? Solomon. Starting off as good as it gets, with as good a family as you can have, at least back then, with all of its issues. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides the Pharaoh's daughter. And he, he lists all these other countries besides Egypt. They're from the nations which the Lord had told Israel, you must not intermarry with them. Because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Well, how many wives did he have? 700. That's prodigious right there. I just don't even want to think about what that, that was like because, well, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go on that, okay? And then he had 300 concubines. Those are women that he can sleep with and have a pleasurable time with, but, you know, not, not be married. A thousand women. The command of God earlier was that if you're king, you don't take many wives. And have excess, you know, wealth 
for yourself. And his wives, they did what? They led him astray. Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after God their gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his David, his father had been. He followed these other gods and, and these detestable gods. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not follow the Lord completely as his father has done. It will be very instructive to you to read the rest of chapter 11. Because what happens next? God says, because I'm honoring your father, David, I'm not going to rip the kingdom out of your hands, but out of your kids' hands, it's going to be over. From that time on, with Solomon's kids, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom is divided forever in the Old Testament. Northern tribes, southern tribes, northern tribes, Follow the Bible even less than the commands of God. They get wiped out in 721 by the Assyrians. They're gone. You can't even trace back your lineage, you know, this point there. And then the southern kingdom, you know, about 150 years later, give or take a little bit, they're wiped out by the Babylonians because they take a little bit longer, but they too just blow off the commands of God. And here we go. Here's the fountainhead, a leader, a king. And, we, you know, there have been many, you know, through history, you know, that just, you know, will not take seriously. God's commands and does it impact his life does it impact his kids does it impact his culture and his nation if we don't get this we are just not going to get it the seriousness of this and in a society where you and I live and swim and our kids are and our grandkids we just have to pray a lot don't we and to set a good example in our own lives and understand it it, it, it only takes a generation before it all starts going downhill and it can go in a hurry. God's plan in this case with Elijah and Elisha, okay, is to introduce him to this young man. Let's go on to the next, uh, to the next slide. He comes in and, uh, you know, uh, we can go uh, right here in chapter 19. Uh, again, I'm asking you to follow along and then go back and read this because the time, we just don't have time to read a lot of uh, these, these uh, passages of Scripture. But so immediately God sends Elisha to this young, Elijah to, to this younger, much younger man, different kind of, uh, you know, place in society there, a little more cultured, a little more family, you know, type guy, different. But he's plowing, and Elijah comes up, and he throws his cloak around him, or his mantle, okay? Uh, you ever hear that phrase about putting on the mantle? You are taking up the mantle. Somebody, it's like passing the baton, you know, or the torch. And if you'll read on in the chapter, Elisha knows exactly what this is, okay? And this is the prophet, the famous prophet. He puts this around him, and he's saying, hey, you're the choice, to continue on to the next generation. If you'll read the response, okay, it's immediate, it's decisive to make sure that Elisha, you know, uh, in his own mind is, is making an, an all-in commitment, similar like we do when we become a disciple or when we make a decision to take on, you know, some leadership that we're asked to take on. He goes all in. He actually takes his oxen. He slaughters them. He burns his plows, and he, he throws a party, and he tells everybody, and he feeds them. He tells them, what's up? That's what's going on, okay? He has taken this full on. You know, this is a really important point for us, whatever generation that we're in, but when we're a little bit older, be willing to pass things on to the younger, 
and to make it real clear what this means. And then for a younger generation and then or for somebody taking on, doesn't have to be age-related, a responsibility that you're being asked to take on, going all in on it and being able to truly give your heart to this. Elisha does, and some amazing things happen. We're going to go in quick succession now, okay, and we'll be taking you right through uh, into into 2 Kings. Let's go to the next passage, you know, in in there. Here, of course, is a rendition of Elijah and Elisha in this scene we just described. We'll keep on going. Thanks, Bob. And we go to the next slide, and then here's here's what happens. This is very similar to Ruth and Naomi. You remember how uh, Naomi says, you don't have to go with me. You can stay and be, you know, with your families there, and, uh, you know, uh, Ruth says, hey, don't, don't ask me to do this. I'm going to stay with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God, you know, etc. There's that kind of loyalty, honor, and legacy that is illustrated in, in, in all of these relationships. It's the same thing here. Elisha is at the end of his life. Uh, we, we, we went on, if you read this, Elisha has become an apprentice or a servant. Okay, he's just followed Elijah around. He's learning everything that he can. He's, you know, submitted himself to learn and to be taught. And now the time comes where Elisha, Elijah knows he's, he's going to uh, make his exit out of, this, uh, out of this earth. And he says, hey, you stay here. Three times in a row. Here going to Bethel. The next time again, if you're looking in your text, at, uh, at, at Jericho. And a, a, again a time going to the river that we sang about. The Jordan River. And so each time we see this same, th- same commitment of loyalty and a relationship that is forged. And then Elisha will say to Elijah, as sure as the Lord uh, lives, I'm not leaving you. I'm sticking with you side by side. Praise God if you have some relationships like that. Ask God to give them to you and for you to be invested in those where you are just committed to each other come, well, there are phrases we could use. Whatever comes, come what may, whatever comes out that door from, you know, whatever it is, you're sticking with them and you're staying close. There was that kind of heart. They went on to the Jordan River. We'll go to the next slide, you know, right here. What happens is basically if you're looking in, uh, you know, I think it's around in chapter 2, you know, here of, of Second Kings, we're reenacting the uh, exodus and the, uh, the movement into Canaan, okay, where uh, the jo- River Jordan is, uh, is, is miraculously stopped. Joshua and the priests, you know, go through, and uh, this is, you know, as they're entering into the promised land, into Canaan. God puts together a very similar scene here. First of all, Elijah strikes the water with the cloak, it opens up, and this group of uh, many 50 or so, you know, uh, other prophets observe. The two of these guys walk through, okay, and, uh, you know, just in a miraculous sort of way. When we go to the next slide, we see what happens. The, uh, when they get over there, here's what Elisha says, and there's a lesson in, in this for us. He says to Elijah, he says, I want a double portion of what you've got. I not only want to do what you're doing, I want to do it better. I want to do it more effectively. Hopefully that's more than just young, man, young, uh, young man's ambition. But a real heart to want to do greater things in God's kingdom. Do you have that heart? You've had people that have led your life, right? That have been influencing you? Whatever age we are, do you have that same humble spirit? Hey, get, give me the whole war chest here. Give me a double portion. I want to take it as high as I can. 
Elijah can't answer that question because only God can do it. And so he tells uh, his, young, uh, his young disciple, maybe not so young you know, anymore, he says, listen, I'm about to be taken up into heaven. And if you see me leaving, you know, God is affirming you got this double portion. If you don't, well, uh, you just keep doing you know, what you need to be, uh, you know, what you need to be doing. Go to the next slide because, uh, in fact, um, you know, uh, he does see it. Elisha does. He says, I can see it. The chariots and horsemen of Israel. And we go to the next slide. There's a little artistic rendition of that. Okay. As Elisha sees Elijah, you know, in one of these, these few miraculous translations right into, uh, uh, into heaven. And, and, and this is confirmed for him. We'll go to the next slide. And, uh, okay. Let's... Uh, Let's end with a baldness scripture here. <laughs> to, do, to, to deal with this with integrity, I got to cover this. It's right after that. The guys are coming back, and apparently they meet, it's kind of like a street gang. These aren't kids. You look at the word, it's like the word for youth. We probably got a big old large group of rambunctious, rebellious, ungodly street gang, and they're uh, they're taunting the prophet of God, the one that God has chosen. And they're saying, actually, in the original translations, New American Standard, others, go up, go up, bald head. And maybe a reference to, hey, why don't you go on up just like Elijah, you know, did, and being very disrespectful. And then Elisha uh, says some not very complimentary things to them. Two bears come out of the woods and start, you know, going to work on these kids. And 42 of them are these young guys, you know, pay a price. We don't know how many arms were taken off or what was going on, okay? But it was, it, it was not a happy scene because God's prophet and leader and commands were completely ridiculed and blown off. I'm kind of glad I'm in the New Testament right now. <laughs> I wouldn't have any limbs left. And maybe you wouldn't either. But there are certain times, and those of you who read the Bible know this doesn't happen on every page. This is not how God deals with every situation. But he does if we go to the next slide. He does, from time to time, do some things to get our attention and know this is not a game. This is serious. God's command, the leaders that God uses, you know, you know in our life, and that our attitude is important. And so when, when Paul is reminiscing a little bit or reflecting on some of these events in the Old Testament, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for us. Whether it had to do with immorality or testing God or grumbling or whatever it is, you get down to the bottom line, these last, last verse, these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down as warnings, nuthateo, to us, for whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Amen? Okay, we've covered some stuff in fairly fast order, haven't we? We're going to close out this service with our worship team. They're going to come up, and they're going to sing about the love of God. Praise God for it. The whole Bible is a love story. He's lovingly, even when he gives us challenges, you know, in everything he can, trying to show us his love and to help us to take it deeper with him. How about we use that love of God to inspire us to also be able to seek first his righteousness, 
you know, as well as his kingdom, and also to forge and maintain godly relationships in the church, in our life, in our family that can sustain us, you know, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's all stand and we'll sing this song together.